You're listening to the Western Science Speaks podcast. Explaining why these selfless acts are actually advantageous is important. Evolution is a slow and unguided process. Well, I'm Canadian and this is the school I go to and this is how much I love my culture. Let me share this with you. Presented by Henry Standage. Hey, I'm your host, Henry Standage, and thank you for joining us for the Halloween edition of Western Science Speaks. We have an absolutely stacked episode for you guys today. To start, we're going to be talking with Liana Zanette from the Department of Biology about how fear evolved and how it varies across different species and individuals within those species. Afterwards, we'll be with Yolanda Hedberg for a briefing on the chemistry of candy. Everything you need to know before you go trick-or-treating in the future or bring your kids trick-or-treating. Then to end, a conversation with neuroscientist Lyle Miller regarding how fear stays in the brain and the different ways it can manifest in our day-to-day lives. Fear is something we all live with, and the guests on this show's episode understand it in a palatable way. And I know I personally left these conversations with a new perspective on what I'd always perceived as shortcomings and how I'm wired. This is a jam-packed show, so let's hop into our first section of Fright Explained with Liana Zanette. All right, Liana Zanette is here. Thanks for joining us, Liana. And you're here to discuss your research pertaining to how different species of wildlife exhibit and react to fear. So how does somebody with your ecological and biological research background define fear? Yeah, so uh, fear is meant to keep you alive, to prevent you from dying immediately in uh, something like a predator attack. And so any sort of life-threatening event can can begin the physiological and behavioral fear responses that we see. How does the perception of fear change across different species? Fear is really one of those unifying forces that connect all taxonomic groups of animals, whether we're talking about the smallest little single-celled thing, up to humans. Because all of us have an evolutionary history where we have been confronted with predators. And so across species, it's actually um, the behavioral responses, some of the physiological responses in um, in many of the neurobiological responses are all quite similar and quite, we call that conserved across species, taxonomic groups. It's really quite amazing. It's really a unifying force. Now, the modalities that that animals use in order to perceive a predator or a threat in the environment, the strength of the modality that they rely on might vary across species. So uh, everything will use you know, if you have ears and if you have eyes, they'll use their ears and eyes and, and noses in order to uh, gain information about whether or not there's a threat in the environment. Some species might rely more on vision, some might rely more on sound, but generally everything has something that they use or a combination of modalities that they use to perceive predators in the environment or a life-threatening event. Mm. It's really interesting that you're describing fear as this good thing that is inherently required for any species to survive, because in some human cultures or social circles, fear is perceived as a weakness, 
And you're telling us that it's really the opposite. But if fear is this important evolutionary trait, why does it occasionally foster lower birth rates in some species? Well, yes, fear does uh, allow you to survive another day, but it does carry costs. And uh, these costs are usually referred to as trade-offs. Because if there's something like a predator in the environment, I mean, we've seen you know birds at bird feeders, and if there's a predator uh, that comes uh, close to the feeder, you know what the bird does, right? It stops feeding, it leaves the, uh, the feeder right away, it ducks to cover. And that means that it won't get taken by the predator because it exhibited this fear response. And so that's really great. But at the same time, it does carry that cost in terms of reduced foraging. And the less you feed, and uh, if this is happening chronically over a long period of time, it means it's going to accumulate. And so it's because of these kinds of behavioral trade-offs that we can see uh, massive reductions in the number of offspring that animals are able to produce simply because they're not, they're, they're looking for predators instead of looking for food. So they're getting less food. They're able to produce fewer offspring. They're less able to provision those offspring. And so that, that can reduce the, uh, the number that they produce over a season. Do you have an example of an animal that's prone to overcompensating for fear? So we, we've done experiments where we've uh, done sounds of predators for, uh, for a bird and other birds heard non-predator sounds. And in response to that over breeding season, the, the adult parents fed less. So they laid fewer eggs, fewer eggs hatched, fewer offspring were provisioned. And so fewer, fewer of them made it out of the nest. And so, you know, that's a response on average. And there's individual variation. I mean, we, we've done experiments in South Africa, and this is, this is sort of what we're finding at a community level. So we look across 33 different mammal species, and we play lion sounds, we play in the sounds of humans. And overall, across the community, all of those species run mostly when they hear humans. But there's some species that are an exception. So things like elephants, they don't really care. <laughs> Hippos, they don't really care. So there is, there is some variation across, across species for sure. Now I do want to talk to you about that variability between humans because I think everybody has a thrill seeker in their life, somebody who chases that adrenaline of being frightened. What would you estimate is the difference? Well, we, we do see that there is uh, a lot of individual variation in the expression of the behavioral responses. So, uh, for example, an experiment that we did where we were looking at birds, they had offspring that had just left the nest. So they, they had really young birds that they still had to provision. They had to provide with food for another few weeks until they became independent. And then the little, the little fledglings were radio tagged. So we were able to find them in the field. And then uh, once we found them, we set up speakers that played a predator sound for an hour. And then we played played a non-predator sound for an hour. And we looked at the parents' responses to the two different treatments. And what we find is that overall, parents reduce the amount of food that they provision their offspring by about three feedings per hour when they think that there's predators around. So that, that, that's a mean. But when we look at the variation across parents, it's really astronomical. Some parents 
when the predator sounds were on, they would not visit their offspring at all. Zero in that whole hour compared to when the, when the non-predator sound was on. But other parents could care less, right? I mean, they would just go in and they provision, 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 provision. And, and interestingly, it's the uh, individual variation that we saw across these parents was related to whether or not their, their offspring would survive to breeding age. So if, uh, if they were kind of really scared out of their minds when they thought that there was a predator around and didn't feed their offspring, those offspring were more likely not to survive later on. So, you know, that really short-term behavioral kind of assay allowed us to get a mean, but also allowed us to see that individual variation, that enormous individual variation across, across the birds that was related to survival. And the reason that there's individual variation is, is a great question, right? I mean, we know that if animals experience a, a life-threatening event, that, that can lead permanent changes in the brain. And, then, uh, and so you might become, you know, hypervigilant, hypersensitive to any sort of threat that might be out there compared to other individuals that have had less of an experience. So, so it's thought that past experience, even for humans, really determines how you're going to respond to, uh, to life-threatening events. You know, not everybody gets post-traumatic stress disorder, but 20% of people do. And, you know, it's thought that that is related to that individual's previous early life experience. And so in the birds that I was talking about, where they were reared with parents that uh, thought that there were lots of predators around, those parents produced fewer offspring but you would expect that those offspring themselves, if they do survive to breed in the following year, that they will be permanently affected by their previous rearing environment. So when we find those offspring, when they become breeding age and they, you know, they set up territories on their own, that the ones that were reared where their parents thought that there were lots of predators around actually do sing fewer songs compared to those that were reared in less threatening environment and being able to sing lots of songs is important for attracting mates etc all of these things develop depending on partly genes but also partly because of your circumstances so you just told us that ptsd really does exist in animals that life-threatening events can change them in some fundamental way and the single most fascinating question to me within all this stuff is how big a role someone's circumstances when they're young plays in how they ultimately develop. And that example of the birds who don't sing really gets at that. Yeah, well, I mean, we're, we're looking at these sorts of things also in terms of because we're interested in how humans frighten wildlife and the effects of that in the environment. And one thing we're doing is we're contrasting areas where animals are hunted quite heavily versus not. We would expect them to be more afraid and run more often if they think humans mm. are around where, they're, where humans are more lethal. So these are sorts of things that we're trying to test. And there's another group in, in Mozambique in Gorongosa Park. And, and what they've suggested is that the elephants there do actually have a type of post-traumatic stress. Because in Gorongosa National Park, there is a 10-year 
war of independence with the Portuguese, followed by a 20-year civil war, all very brutal. And in addition to having an impact on the human, on humans out there, it also had a major impact on the wildlife. Almost everything went extinct because people went in and poached it or ate it. And so elephants were no different. Elephants were heavily poached, mostly for their tusks, to get money for that, uh, so people could eat, but also to buy arms, etc. And now, today, the elephants, they're trying to reestablish the ecosystem in Gorongosa National Park. And that involves implementing some ecotourism. And they're having a lot of troubles with ecotourism, especially regards the elephants, because the elephants live a long time and the matriarchs have a memory of humans killing their sisters and offspring. And also many of them have bullet wounds in their ears and stuff like that. So mm -hmm. they have been attacked as well by humans. And so now whenever these elephants see a human, they charge them. And so it's like they recognize humans. They remember that humans are a significant, were a significant threat. And as a, as a result, even though ecotourism, ecotourists are completely benign, they, they still recognize humans as a threat and they don't trust them whatsoever. Because of this experience they had with humans during the Civil War, they now favor fight over flight, yes? Yeah. So that suggests that this fight or flight response is adaptable, which leads me to my next question. As a civilian that has to coexist with animals like raccoons and skunks and squirrels here in Ontario, uh, how scared are they of me? How can I make them feel more welcome, even if I'm not that big a fan of them? Uh, is there any chance that they don't see me as a threat? No, they're afraid of you. <laughs> <laughs> And that, that can't be changed? No, no. Uh, maybe if, uh, if humans stop killing these things, then maybe that could mm -hmm. be changed. But, um, but certainly, you know, everybody sees raccoons all over the place. But we've shown in experiments that, that medium-sized carnivores, because they're frequently persecuted by people, that is, people kill them for various reasons, for their fur, or because they consider them pests or whatever, that the thing that those animals are most afraid of is not an apex predator, it's humans talking, and, and, and just talking. So just just human presence is enough to scare these animals. And the reason that they're around, though, is because we do provide other things like shelter and food. I mean, they, they do things to keep their distance, right? That's partly why they come out at night. We know raccoons, for example, if there's no predators around, they will forage day and night. Humans around, it's a whole other story. And they and they will mostly come out at night. So, they, so there is some, um, so animals... Even, even the ones that live with us, if they've been, especially if they've been persecuted, they, they'll live with us, but they sure don't like us. And they will do whatever they can in order to avoid contact with us, like changing, you know, when they forage, etc. Hmm. I would love to have some sort of handshake agreement with the skunks that lurk around my house because I'm always super concerned every time I'm leaving to go downtown to meet up with people. I know, but they're more concerned about you, right? That's why you're concerned because you yeah. see them lifting their tail. They see a big predator coming along. They're going to lift their tail, right? <laughs> <laughs> what do you think it is about talking that they perceive as so terrifying? It's a very um, reliable 
indicator that a human is around, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it, it's reliable. It's also useful because sound can really travel and the human doesn't have to be right in front of you. So it's just, it's, it's a reliable indicator of the presence of something that is quite lethal. Yeah, I was about to ask you how reliant these animals are on a visual presence, something that they can see, because when I walk down a dark tunnel at night, not being able to see is much scarier than anything that could actually possibly be there, right? The mystery of it. Do animals experience that phenomenon at all? Lots of things absolutely do rely on sound, especially in terms of uh, wildlife, probably. And, and there, there are some examples where species will be more afraid of certain things than others. So, for example, black-capped chickadees, little chickadees that we see in the backyard at our feeders and such. Um, we know that, that if they see a predator in a tree, they do a call called a mobbing call. So they'll do chickadee dee dee dee, and that gets all the other chickadees doing chickadee dee dee, and then all the other species like the nuthatches and things will get involved too, and then they'll mob the predator. And the reason they'll do this is because being able to know exactly where the predator is is considered sort of a downgraded kind of threat, because mm. if the chickadee knows where the predator is, then it's no longer really a threat. It can't sneak up on it and grab it. Right. And so they'll actually go up. I mean, some species like crows will, you know, hit things like bald eagles on the head and stuff like that. Right. Because their threat is is kind of limited because the chickadees know where they are. But if they hear the sound of a, of a raptor, some sort of um, hawk, and they just hear the sound, but they don't know where the sound is coming from they can't locate it they do a completely different sort of response instead of being really mobile and jumping around and giving that call they give a they give a call called a high z it's a high-pitched call that's call that's thought to be uh, not very easily located by anybody it's hardly given and then they freeze so they do the exact opposite that's because they know there's a predator around they heard it they don't know exactly where it is. That means that the predator can sneak up on them. If they start to move, you know, they won't know what direction to fly if the predator comes after them, etc. So they're more likely to die. So they exhibit these completely different behaviors. Even though it's a hawk in both cases, the knowing where the hawk is versus not makes a huge difference in the level of threat that that predator poses on the chickadees. And uh, we also find that there's uh, signatures of these different levels of threat in their brain as well. So when, uh, when we give chickadees the sounds of predators, they, there's areas there of their brain that are associated with fear that really light up. If we show them a mount of a predator, you know, uh, a stuffed hawk, those areas of the brain are much less lit up. They, they definitely do have a way to differentiate different threat levels, even for the same species of predator. Mm. Anytime a group of smaller animals groups together to fight off predator, I'm always just totally engrossed. I always find myself down the YouTube wormhole with like watching a pack of walruses fight off a polar bear. 
Yeah, yeah, it, it's pretty cool. I mean, but you can experience it yourself. Go to Gibbons Park, you know, that area where they're naturalizing it. And there's loads of red-winged blackbirds breeding there in the summertime. And they, they don't like people coming anywhere near their nests. And so they'll smack you over the head. Okay, thanks for giving me plans for next summer. <laughs> the Western geese, I think, embody that mob mentality you're referring to. Yeah, just, yeah. But I want to ask you one last thing before we go. Human Humans evolved in a dangerous world where we had to develop fear. But in our modern world, do you think fear is a totally necessary emotion to experience? Furthermore, if we had an apex predator introduced into our urban spaces, would we be able to snap back to our primal senses in a meaningful way? The reason we don't have predators around in, in many urban environments is because humans killed them, right? But nonetheless, there are still lots of urban environments where predators are allowed to roam around all across Europe, all across, you know, when I, when I think about uh, British Columbia, where I've done a lot of work, we're all over on the west side of Vancouver Island. And, you know, there's cities there and people just let Cougars, bears, and wolves wander around all over British Columbia. It's the same thing. And so, you know, there's no, people live with large carnivores all over the world. You know, they don't necessarily need to be exterminated in urban areas. We would have to change our behaviors though, right? So in Tofino on the, on the west side of Vancouver Island, where there's still lots of cougars, bears, and wolves, um, you know, they don't leave the garbage out, right? They put the garbage in bear boxes. Uh, so that discourages the bears from coming along. And, and so there's changes in behavior that we would have to do in order to live with large carnivores if they've been, especially if they've been gone a long time and we've forgotten how to do that. But the, the, the responses are all, are all still there. And, you know, people don't have any troubles living with large carnivores, lots of different places. We'll end the interview there, but thanks so much for doing this. I hope people's main takeaway is that fear is a strength and not a weakness. The only thing we can control is our courage and also how we treat fellow inhabitants of Earth and treat their fear with kindness. Yeah, absolutely. So thank you, Liana. Hey, well, thanks a lot for contacting me. Yeah. <laughs> Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Liana. If you want to hear another awesome talk she gave about her work, check out the interview she did about fear with the BBC in 2013. Before we move on to Yolanda Hedberg, I wanted to remind you guys to subscribe to the podcast and make sure you never miss a great discussion. If there's a topic you'd like us to investigate, let us know. Send an email to science at uo.ca. Now, on to Yolanda Hedberg. Yolanda Hedberg is here to talk to us about the chemistry of candy. Welcome to the show. And let me open by asking you this. I think a lot of consumers without a scientific background wrestle with the concept of chocolate having health benefits. Is chocolate healthy or is it toxic or is it a bit of both? For chocolate, we have to distinguish. They have some good things in it and they have some, some bad, th bad uh, things in it. And um, there is... Um, some chocolates contain very high amounts of toxic uh, metals. So metals are generally in food both good and bad. So if they are in a certain concentration, they are very good. We, we are many um, persons, uh, especially women, that have a deficiency of um, metals. 
metals like copper, cobalt, iron, they are very good for our health because usually we have too little of it. Uh, so if these metals are contained at the right concentration in the food, it's very good for our health. But if they are too high or if they are so-called non-essential metals, like uh, lead is a good example, then they are just toxic and they can induce a lot of uh, diseases like um, brain damage and uh, cancer. And in chocolate, the toxins are very different dependent on where you buy this from. So if there are unfortunately not so many st studies about that, but it's there are a few studies that show that, for example, in Indian chocolate, you have very high amounts of lead uh, and in Italian ones, you have very low amount of this. But I would say if you compare it in different regions, you get very big differences. And, and the, reasons, the reason is that uh, we have different polluted areas. Uh, it's again, where are these cocoa trees? Are they close to industrial polluted areas or not? It sounds like you're saying that, yes, eating chocolate is genuinely good for you. You're going to be better off in the long run for indulging in it rather than completely staying away. You actually lower your blood pressure and get lower risk of cardiovascular diseases. And uh, this has even been shown for chocolate that is not perceived as health healthy. So even the, the ones that have lower uh, content of cocoa. But, but I should say that there are even more healthier um, alternatives to get this flavor noise. You should eat onions, kale, grapes, tea, <laughs> berries, tomatoes, broccoli and peaches. <laughs> That's even better. <laughs> and how does the surface chemistry of chocolate work? For all materials, what you need to know is that uh, the atoms are ordered in a certain way, so that is called a crystal, and they can also be ordered a different way. It's like uh, if you have uh, cubes or hexagons or whatever, so that is the, the order of different atoms. And depending on which order they have, they have different properties. And uh, chocolate is not different, so uh, chocolate has different types of faces, and all of them have different properties, like different um, melting temperatures and so on. And you want to have a certain face. So a certain face is the one that has exactly the right feeling in the mouth uh, of this uh, melting point. And it's also uh, the one that looks nicest uh, on the surface. Um, you need to make sure that it has been produced in a certain way and also stored in a certain way. So it keeps this face. To, to avoid that this uh, surface is changed, you have to store them below 23 degrees C and also not cycle the temperature. So you shouldn't take them in the fridge out and in and so then, then the phase will change again. What happens when they change, it's called fat bloom. So the fat bloom is nothing else than certain crystals in micro size on the surface. And these are scattering the light. So they look more rough and they look more white. Maybe you have, uh, uh, remember some old chocolate, they, they seem to have like a white surface. That is nothing else than a certain fat crystal structure that is on the surface. It's nothing dangerous. You can still eat it, but it's not as <laughs> good. <laughs> For people who like fruity, chewy, taffy-like candies, such as Starburst, Skittles, you're getting a lot of synthetic flavors. What are the consequences of making 
in an environmental sense and ingesting in a personal human health sense these fake flavors? Yeah, I think um, first we need to distinguish the flavors. So flavors, uh, um, usually people distinguish the natural and the synthetic flavors. Uh, but actually natural can mean anything like uh, it can be extract from fruits, but it can also be uh, produced by fungi or by bacteria. The synthetic flavors just means they are produced in some kind of chemical way. There has been a case of a five-year-old girl that always when she ate uh, colorful candies, she got like a complete reaction, like headache and even got unconscious. The sweeteners are actually even more uh, concerning. So uh, sweeteners like um, aspartame, they are in uh, all these soft drinks like uh, Coca-Cola Zero, Coca-Cola Light, um, and all these um, sugar-free products. And sugar-free means they have some kind of sweeteners. And several of these sweeteners have really health problems. Like, uh, for example, aspartame has been shown to cause seizures, headache, and attention deficit disorders, and also they can cause addiction. Yeah, and what does the chemical makeup look like for those candies with stickier surfaces? In some candies, you don't want to have any crystal structure, so that is called amorphous. And amorphous means that the, um, the atoms are not structured, they are like randomly ordered, and that they also have a little bit bigger distance to each other. And that is usually happen from like our daily life. The best um, example would be glass. Glass is nothing else than an undermelt uh, or an undercooled melt. So it has been a melt and then it has been cooled really fast. So it couldn't have time to uh, order in a certain structure. And that is why glass is transparent. Candies, they, have, they do have a crystalline structure, um, so they're not transparent. Usually uh, they crystallize quite fast, um, but you can hinder this uh, by having a high, higher boiling temperature of the sucrose and also by uh, adding some other types of sugar like fructose um, and these are called the interference uh, interferent agents and they interfere with the crystallization of the sucrose. What circumstances can cause a candy surface to rot or corrode over time? Like uh, for everything that has to do with corrosion it could be UV irradiation so light of course that's why they always are wrapped into paper and but, but for chocolate, the most important part is the, um, the temperature. And of course, they are always exposed to air and air uh, contains oxygen and that is oxidizing everything. We're gonna finish with a speed round. I'm gonna ask you about a couple forms of candy and you'll touch on them briefly. And you can give a rating from one to five where one means that ethically, environmentally and health-wise can feel okay about eating or ingesting this. And a five would mean stay clear. Let's start with gum. That depends on if it contains sweetener or sugar. <laughs> I have gum right here. Uh, yeah, check if it is containing aspartame. Each piece contains ooh, 19 milligrams of aspartame. Yeah, you see, I would stay away from it. Five. <laughs> it's my favorite gum. <laughs> <laughs> Next, popcorn. So... Here, my husband would say one, okay? And I say, yes, if you don't sweeten it and if you don't salt it. 
taffy. Again, if it contains uh, any of the sweeteners or acidized, then it's uh, worse. So let's give some, some kind of middle one, three. Cotton candy. Yeah, so that's, um, they always advertise it with, uh, it has very low calories and that's true, but it just hair. contains sugar. <laughs> it just contains sugar. And uh, I think the sugar content that it contains is, is more than double than what you should eat every day. So oh uh, five. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah, it's literally air seasoned with sugar. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Chips. I personally like it, but they can contain this uh, carcinogenic uh, acrylamate. Um, but that depends on how they are produced. And I think today, most of the manufacturers have some control over that. So they, they are um, actually measuring the amount of acrylamate in, in the chips. So I think today it would be like two. My dentist would say, stay away completely from it, five. <laughs> mm. Because they are, uh, you, you just have too much um, contact with the teeth. Speaking of teeth, what kind of chemical reaction occurs between my teeth and the materials in candy when I bite down? Teeth are actually ceramic materials. So one of the most beautiful ceramic material um, that exists. Um, you maybe, you know, plates and cups, they, if you, um, let them fall to the floor, they will break. Uh, but teeth are much tougher. And the reason is that um, even if they are of the same type of material, they um, have a certain structure, like a platelet structure of this uh, ceramic material, which consists of calcium, phosphates, carbonates. Um, and um, so they are, have really nice mechanical properties for being ceramics. Um, but still, even if they are ceramics, um, they can be degraded by acids. And this is what happens. So if you, if you have a lot of exposure to candies, the sugar, the sugar itself is actually not destroying the teeth, but in the presence of bacteria, there is a lot of acid formed and this acid is degrading the teeth. Before we let you go, as somebody with a thorough understanding of what candy is in an organic sense, what does an ideal relationship with these sugary snacks look like? The best thing we can do is to think about healthy food and healthy daily exercise, clean air and education. That are the four factors that are influencing the, how long we will live. I never think that we should uh, stop doing something that is unhealthy because you can, you can get uh, pretty fundamental about that and just say, oh, I never want to eat any candies or any sugar. I don't think we humans are made for this. Uh, we need some kind of uh, stimuli. Mm. So I think we need to be honest to ourselves and just try to balance all the risks. So if a kid shows up at my front door on Halloween, you're saying I shouldn't give them celery? I think you should give them candies. <laughs> all right, we'll, uh, we'll wrap up there, but thanks so much. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> Bye. Thank you. Goodbye. Thanks to Yolanda Hedberg for joining us. Before we go to our last interview of the day with Lyle Miller, what holiday special would you like to see us do next? Christmas, Groundhog Day, Canada Day? Let us know, and don't forget to share this episode with the people in your life who need to hear it. 
All right, Lyle Miller is here. Thanks for joining us. And your section is about how fear stays with us, how it manages to carve out a permanent place in the brain. And later we'll talk about some of the techniques being developed for helping our brain cope with traumatic memories. But I want to start here. What happens in the brain when we're scared by something? Uh, that's a great question. Fear, we know that fear involves a range of brain areas working together. So we know that it's uh, places in the frontal cortex working with another uh, set of regions that are in the limbic system. So the area that's most well associated with fear is called the amygdala, which is this collection of nuclei that's really deep in the brain and it plays important roles in emotion. It's probably best to say that this amygdala has a role in processing strong emotions where fear might be the best example, right? Or the most recognizable example. Okay, so it exists in the amygdala. How have we been able to study that historically? Because I know when we met before, you mentioned how there have been these areas that we haven't known a lot about that in recent years, we've been able to discover a lot more. Yeah. Traditionally in neuroscience, we've recorded from single electrodes. So that's kind of like looking at the brain through a straw. There's all of this activity. It's like a whole symphony of um, players working together. And it's kind of like focusing on just the one violinist. Now what we're doing more and more in neuroscience is develop these really large scale recording techniques. So instead of one electrode, maybe tens or hundreds or even sometimes thousands of electrodes. And that's really exciting because now we can kind of see the whole symphony working together. For fear specifically, there's a lab at Western led by Julio Martinez Trujillo, who's using these large scale or um, larger scale multi-electrode recordings to understand amygdala circuits and exactly how they're related to fear. And if you look at the one violinist or this one electrode activity, things looked a lot like noise. So the brain has this constant ongoing spontaneous activity that's just going around all of the different circuits and we couldn't really explain it. But now as we're starting to record from more and more electrodes, instead of seeing these, you know, kind of meaningless noise patterns, we're starting to see this huge orchestrated symphony of activity. How does the brain offload memories from one structure to another? Yeah. So if you think about um, a scene from your life, Right. So imagine you were camping somewhere in the mountains and you had this experience or this memory of waking up. You know, when you're seeing the uh, mountains, you're maybe smelling a campfire. We know that the memory footprint of this experience is formed in your hippocampus. So that's where it starts. And then during sleep later, um, it's transferred to the neocortex. So you can think of the hippocampus as this kind of smaller set of neurons that is responsible for forming the memories. And the neocortex is this huge, huge network where uh, all your long-term memories are being stored. That's called the two-stage model of memory consolidation, where you have these uh, memories of experience that happen during your day. Um, and then through consolidation, they're integrated with old memories without losing or disrupting them. Yeah. And in, in modern human societies, we're not fighting for survival every day. Dangerous experiences are much more few and far between. So a lot of fear is actually memories of those experiences where we are scared for our life. 
And so with PTSD, we're talking about an experience so frightening and overwhelming that it lurks in our brain for years and the connections that trigger that event become too broad. Is it possible to remove that memory to stop the constant encoding of that experience we had? One of the most interesting ideas that's coming from computational neuroscience historically is that memories are likely highly distributed in the network of synaptic connections between neurons. So instead of a memory being stored in a single neuron or in a small group of neurons, we think that the memories are actually stored in this really broad distributed brain network. And so this idea actually was first conceived by a Canadian neuroscientist named Donald Hebb. And it wasn't really at first taken seriously by the neuroscience community. So this is in the 1940s, 1950s, until a group of physicists in the 1960s and 1970s started working on these ideas and applying mathematical tools. So to get to your point, the memories are so enmeshed in the synaptic network of cortex that it's really difficult to, it seems like it's really difficult to remove a specific memory. But at the point of encoding, so during sleep, um, in this process of memory consolidation, that's where we think that memories are most, um, it's most possible to target memories or to modulate memory consolidation as it's uh, happening, as it's going from the hippocampus to the neocortex. Yeah, so what happens while we're sleeping where that process is able to happen so effectively? If we go back to that example of camping um, and you're in the mountains, you're um, having a visual experience of these trees that, uh, that you're looking at or smelling a campfire as you wake up, we know that the individual pieces of this memory are all stored in different cortical regions all across the brain. And these become active during the process of recalling or remembering so for example, if you're thinking about a visual scene, your visual cortex, your very early um, visual areas light up when you're having that memory. We needed to kind of understand how this distributed brain network links together all the activity patterns when the memories are transferred from the hippocampus to the neocortex. And so that touches on some work that um, we did while I was at the Salk Institute in California, where we found a specific mechanism for how this might work in the brain. What we were studying was a specific sleep rhythm called sleep spindles. These are 11 to 15 hertz brain rhythms that occur during sleep. And we were studying how they're organized across the cortex. We did this through a collaboration with a group of neurologists at Massachusetts General Hospital, where we were studying these rhythms in highly precise and local recordings made in the clinic as they're uh, neurologists were mapping the patient's brains for epileptic activity. And so during nights with normal sleep, where there weren't any seizures, we studied these rhythms, these sleep spindles. And while people had generally thought previously that there was no real organization to the pattern of these spindles across the brain, specifically what people thought was that they were all synchronized, or that means that the rhythm is going up and down together at all points in the brain at the same time. Using some computational techniques that we developed to analyze kind of movies of activity, we found that the spindles are actually organized in these really beautiful patterns of waves that rotate across the brain. And so it turns out that these waves 
travel at the speed it takes neurons across distant points in the brain to communicate with each other. So if you're back here in visual cortex, it takes some time to um, communicate to neurons in the frontal cortex. And these waves that are appearing during sleep seem to be able to provide that highway, that link for uh, visual cortex neurons to link up with the frontal cortex neurons. We think that this is a mechanism for how the brain self-organizes its activity to allow communication and linking parts, these different parts of remembered events. So visual, auditory, olfactory parts uh, between these neurons that are spread all across the brain. And were you looking specifically at people dealing with PTSD or just uh, random samples? So these are um, patients that are undergoing treatment for epilepsy. Okay. Um, but we think that this specific mechanism generalizes to um, PTSD, for example. And so if you had in a traumatic experience, that memory of that traumatic experience is kind of locked in or repeated over the course of uh, sleep then in the nights following. And so that turns out to be the critical time at which um, the memory is really formed and consolidated. That's interesting because say I go to Disney World with my parents and have the best day ever, and I want to have a really vivid memory of that experience, it's probably good to get a, some really good sleeps the days following it. But with a traumatic memory, you can see why people would turn to alcohol and drugs to almost, even if they're not doing it intentionally, screw up that memory forming process, right? Definitely. Yeah, we know that, we know that those uh, substances significantly impair sleep. And so it can actually, people can be self-treating to disrupt those uh, memory formations. Exactly. Will going sober help bring those memories back? Or is it really, if you don't consolidate them in the immediate short term, they're kind of gone forever? Modulating memories, it's very, very tricky. So it's not like alcohol would be a very good way to modulate memories. So Going sober might not have a specific effect on that, right? It might be a good treatment mechanism, but not a um, way of preventing memory consolidation. As I said before, our current world is much less dangerous than the ones our ancestors evolved in. Uh, we were hunter-gatherers, you know, fighting off tigers and traveling long distances. In your opinion, is the development of scary movies or visiting haunted houses... Uh, a symbol of an itch that we desire to be scratched. I think that so scary movies and haunted houses can be really fun. And so it can be uh, a quite a, like exciting experience, but it can also for some people be actually traumatic. So it points to how different individuals will consolidate an experience very differently. Um, and that has to do with people's predisposition to fear and also how they consolidate the memories or integrated into their experience. Now, you said scary movies and haunted houses are fun. They're really not in terms of what the creators of them are trying to do to us. Why would somebody's brain enjoy that? We know that if you have an experience like fear, um, that can involve uh, a fight or flight mechanism and you can actually get adrenaline from that. Mm. And so adrenaline is highly exciting to the um, cortical circuits in, you know, affected by that hormone. So if you have an adrenaline rush, not only do you, you know, 
have um, increased physiological response, but you actually have components of increased memory consolidation as well. Is PTSD something that only humans are capable of having? So we know that fear is really deeply integrated into the circuits of the brain. The amygdala is really well connected with the uh, hippocampus, which is part of what we call paleocortex or old cortex. These circuits are, you know, important for all uh, mammals. And we know that, for example, mice uh, exhibit fear conditioning really, really well. Yeah, because to me, PTSD, an awakening to one's own mortality, and that's scary. It's very curious to think that an animal could experience that as well. Is there a point you can look at and go, this is where you get PTSD on a level of how scared you were? Is it a gradient or a continuum or an all or none threshold thing? I think at the individual level, it is an all or none thing. But there's so much variability between everyone's experience that um, it could, that very different experiences could lead to PTSD. Yeah, because I'm interested to know if it's, an, if it's more nature or nurture, and that if you have a very privileged, easy upbringing, would something less objectively terrifying give you PTSD versus somebody with a very tough, uh, you know, graphic upbringing? Are they, do they grow up a little bit tougher in terms of getting PTSD? That's a great question. You know, um, so much of cognitive neuroscience is done in undergraduate student populations and things like that. And so one of the important things that's being discussed in cognitive neuroscience is how do we expand our testing to make more representative samples of the populations in, you know, not only Ontario, but Canada. And uh, that's a question that people are really actively dealing with. So um, I don't think we know the answer to that specifically, but I think that people are starting to really think about it deeply. Mm, Cool. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit about virtual experiences. So that could be virtual reality, or that could even be watching a scary movie where you're forced to live through a character vicariously. Is there a difference in the activity in the brain of how we process a real life experience versus a virtual experience? That's a great question. There are examples where People have compared, for example, rodents navigating on a real-life track versus a virtual reality track. And they do see that there are specific um, differences in the way the brain processes uh, navigational cues, the way the brain maps out the space. It does seem like virtual reality is a engages the same mechanisms of memory, of cognitive processing in a good enough way that we can think about it as a very rich environment for studying memory and consolidation and things like this. So in collaborations here at Western and with the University Hospital or London Health Sciences Center, we are actively working on virtual reality experiences that clinical patients can um, participate in to understand how, when they're navigating through virtual reality environments? How does their brain map out that environment? So if you imagine playing a video game and you're navigating through a city environment, how do your brain circuits actively take in all of this information, the visual experience, auditory cues in that video game? How does it stitch it all together into, a, um, into the neural circuits for 
remembering and planning out your route. So we're actually actively doing that here at Western. Right. Yeah. Cause when I play a game like Grand Theft Auto, I actually know the city well enough where I can go, Oh, I want to go to this part of the city and I know the roads to take. Exactly. And, and there's some cognitive map that's being called up in your hippocampus and then being integrated with decision-making circuits in other parts of the brain to make that plan to go through the city. Mm. And so we want to study exactly the, the neural circuits that are happening right in that very moment, because again, you know, so much of what we're thinking about in neuroscience was derived from these single neuro, uh, these single uh, electrode recordings. And now that we're starting to see this, orchestration of activity when you're looking at multiple parts of the brain working together now we think we can see a lot of um, structure where it looked a lot like noise before i was telling you before that i've played virtual games where you put on the headset and i have a fear of heights and you go to the top of a building and the game is you just walk off a plank and it, look it wasn't as scary as doing that in real life would have been but it was still scary it was still completely uncomfortable despite being in an animated surrounding something that's clearly not real like the graphics aren't terrible by any means but you can certainly tell the difference between real life and an animated empire state building setting right i think it's a testament to how far the virtual reality headsets have come i actually haven't tested any of the new generation of these uh, headsets but i'm actually really excited to look at those the difference between them and video games is that you're going through it first person rather than third person and you've just pointed out that we're still able to use some of the same tactics in our brain to cognitively map while looking at somebody through the third person but once you change it to first person i'm sure it becomes even more similar what goes on Right. It shows how flexible our brains are in terms of um, these mapping strategies and cognitive strategies. What relationship does REM play in fear memory? So we're just starting to ask these questions about what different sleep stages do in different cognitive aspects. One of the things that's emerged over the past couple of years is that non-REM sleep seems to play a really important role in the establishment or consolidation of episodic memory. So that's like the example of camping in the mountains. Whereas REM sleep seems to be really important for the establishment of fear memories. And it's really interesting that we don't really know what's going on. You know, the sleep stages are kind of a mystery to us still. What's the difference between um, deep, slow wave, non-REM sleep, and this REM sleep where the brain looks like it's almost awake? Um, but one of the things that's really starting to emerge is that fear memories are involved in this REM sleep episodes, whereas episodic memories are involved in the non-REM episodes. When you get an answer, how will that change the way you treat people who are having problems with fear? So one of the things I'm most excited about is understanding the difference between the consolidation of episodic memory and fear memory. And I think that there may be connections between the two. And that's really exciting because we haven't really thought about connections between um, the different sleep stages before, and those is a whole integrated process. And so that's what we're kind of um, looking at is, is there a way in which we can think about um, sleep as this unified process instead of just treating one specific aspect of it? Like, for example, Ambien is known to modulate certain aspects of non-REM sleep. Can we come up with new ways 
to think about sleep as a unified process? And does that lead to new um, ideas for treatment in the future? I think you've made it clear that scary events are the most memorable type of event that we can experience. Right. Does that make us more likely to remember a Halloween from our childhood than a Christmas from our childhood, for example? I think that what we're seeing in neuroscience or what's emerging in the evidence um, here is that they're remembered in very different ways. So they're processed in different ways, not only through um, circuits like the amygdala in terms of fear memory, more hippocampus for episodic memories, like that might be a Christmas that you had as a uh, child, but they're also consolidated in different ways. So sleep works on a memory from Halloween or a scary memory from Halloween differently than a a good memory from Christmas. Mm. And so we're starting to really unravel the cognitive processes by which these uh, different types of memories are formed. I think most people, the first horror movie they watch is the one that messes them up the most. Because as a genre of movies, it's very repetitive and that you can kind of figure out when you're going to get a jump scare. I think it makes a lot of sense that the films would become less memorable as you watch more horror movies. Could a person be clinically traumatized by a scary movie or Halloween prank? One thing that's exciting about neuroscience in the next uh, 10 years is that, like I was talking about looking at the activity of the brain through a straw, you know, if you can only see one small part of the activity, things look a lot like noise. It's hard to explain what's happening when you're only looking Mm. at this one violinist. Right, no context. Exactly. Um, And because of new developments like the Brain Initiative in the States, which is a 10-year program that was started by President Obama in 2013, there's been this amazingly rapid advance in development of new large-scale technologies for neural recordings. And now we're starting to really see the benefit of that in neuroscience, where we're starting to analyze activity patterns, not from just one brain area at a time, but across multiple brain areas and during really naturalistic behaviors where neural circuits are shaping and forming these memories. So that's one thing that I'm really excited about in neuroscience and computational neuroscience, where we're developing the techniques to understand these activity patterns over the next 10 years. We'll finish there, but that was great, Lyle. Thanks for your time. Great. Have a good one. And that wraps up the Halloween edition of Western Science Speaks. Thanks again to Liana Zanette, Yolanda Hedberg, and Lyle Miller. Thanks to you for subscribing, sharing, and listening. I'm Henry Standage signing out. Have a wonderful Halloween. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time.